Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This is the third episode on our Hurricane Katrina series. This episode is going to be entirely about the flooding and levee failures in New Orleans and stories of survival surrounding that. Now just to bring you back up to speed, when we left New Orleans in episode 1, the storm had ripped apart New Orleans with winds in excess of 125 miles per hour sustained and over a foot of rain as well as a decently high storm surge. But this wouldn't just be any storm surge. This would be the start of one of the most infamous flooding events in American history. In order to start this properly, we have to go back and talk about how New Orleans was built again. Because we covered it in episode 1, but I want to recover it here to make sure it's really sunk in. The original settlers of New Orleans were all along the banks of the Mississippi. Because it was the only part that was above sea level and, you know, not a swamp. The problem with this is the people in New Orleans wanted to expand the city, but there's only so much room to expand when you're building a city in the middle of a swamp. So how do you build a city in a swamp? By removing the swamp, of course. So starting in 1899 and continuing on, an engineer by the name of Albert Baldwin Wood began a project, along with some other engineers, to install pumps throughout New Orleans in order to help prevent flooding. What these new pumps also helped to do was literally drain the area around then-existing New Orleans and give the city significantly more space to expand on actual stable ground rather than a swamp. Well, massive quotations on the word stable. The problem is, as the water was pumped out of these areas, the soil began to sink thanks to the water no longer being there to hold it up. This meant that anything that was built on that soil also began to sink. Unfortunately, that means that most of New Orleans started to sink. And what this means is that areas that used to flood in New Orleans thanks to the high groundwater level now flood even more thanks to the lower ground level and being further below sea level. They attempted to fix an old flooding problem and ended up creating a new, larger flooding problem. Originally, New Orleans had been built on the crescent of the Mississippi River between the river and the shore of Lake Pontchartrain. Having been frequently hit by floods from the Mississippi and floods from the Gulf and the lake, the French settlers in the area started to build their own levee system as early as possibly 1718, but at least 1723. Throughout the rest of New Orleans history, there would be multiple new attempts to help prevent flooding in the incredibly flood-prone area. One of the first major ones was the Mississippi River and Tributaries Project. The goal of this project was to build levees all along the Mississippi River to help prevent flooding. As a quick aside, a levee is an embankment on the side of a river helping to keep water within the area that it is supposed to be. This project raised levees along the Mississippi River an average of 16 or so feet. Then again, Congress authorized the Flood Control Act of 1946. This installed a levee system along Lake Pontchartrain. And then, throughout New Orleans history, Various other levees, canals, and walls have been constructed to help with shipping and also to drain areas of the city that would frequently flood. And I'm going to be honest with you here, it is extremely complicated for even those who have studied the drainage system for years, and I'm not going to try and break the entire thing down for you guys here. That would derail the story entirely, and it would be, well, extraordinarily boring because it is extraordinarily complicated. Just know that the attempt to control flooding and water in New Orleans is multifaceted and, well, it is designed. I don't know if I would say it's well designed, but it is certainly designed. Levees to prevent the water from coming over in the first place, pumps to pump the water out that does get in, and canals to drain any water that isn't being pumped out and getting out as well, are all areas that make up the New Orleans drainage system. The levees as they had originally been built in New Orleans were large earthenwork structures. Levees naturally form along riverbanks all the time. When a river floods, the heavier sediment, gravel and things like that, deposit immediately upon coming up out of the river and start to build a mound. As the river continues to flood over the years, that mound grows and grows, making the lever higher and higher. This process, if allowed to continue naturally, takes thousands of years. Obviously, humans can't wait that long, so they start to build them themselves. In order to properly build a levee, the area at the base needs to be widened before it can be built up, otherwise there will be no supporting strength for the upper portions and it will collapse. Unfortunately, in the building of a lot of the New Orleans levees later on, homes and roads and other such things had been built all the way up to the base of the levee, so expansion upwards with earth would be impossible without a major expense of buying private homes and lands and demolishing them to expand the levees. 
So instead, they installed concrete seawalls on top of the already existing levees. This allowed them to extend the levees upwards without expanding outwards. New Orleans itself is divided into four different, essentially, flood basins. The first is the Orleans East Bank. This is the main downtown area of New Orleans. This contains the French Quarter, downtown, and Canal District. It has linked Pontchartrain to the north, the Mississippi River to the south, Industrial Canal to the east, and contains three canals for draining into Lake Pontchartrain, 17th Street Canal, Orleans Canal, and London Avenue Canal. The second protected section is New Orleans East. This was surrounded by Long Pontchartrain to the north, the Industrial Canal to the west, and then the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet Channel to the south, and then to the east of it is just swampland. The third protection section contains the Lower Ninth Ward and St. Bernard Parish. This one has the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet Channel to the north and the Industrial Canal to the west, as well as the Mississippi River to the south and swamps to the east. Now, the fourth protected area is Plaque Mine Parish. It's a very narrow area that is basically for utilities and gas pipelines and occasionally has a couple neighborhoods in there, but it's not super in-depth in this episode. I'm just going to throw that out there. It did flood, but not nearly as bad as the other ones, and it wasn't nearly as catastrophic because it doesn't have as many people living there. Anyway, all of the different portions that we talk about in this episode will be in these areas. So without further ado, let's get into this. First, we're going to start with the Inner Harbor Navigation Canal. That's its long official name, but no one knows it by that. It's known by the informal name of Industrial Canal. This canal is a big deal in New Orleans as it connects Lake Pontchartrain to the Mississippi River. Construction was started in 1918 and finished in 1923 and is used to move shipping and all that through the area. And it was a big deal when it was built because it had long been desired to build a canal from Lake Pontchartrain to the Mississippi River. The problem was the Mississippi River sat at a much higher elevation than Lake Pontchartrain did, so it was extremely difficult to uh, engineer it to actually keep water and allow ships to go through their needed locks and all that kind of stuff. So on the morning of the arrival of Hurricane Katrina, the water level began to rise early in the morning, well before the hurricane made landfall, again because Hurricane Katrina was massive. The water first began to rise in the Industrial Canal well before 4 a.m. on Monday. By 4.30 a.m., the water level in the canal was somewhere about 9 feet above normal, which is a lot, but still within what should be able for the canal to withstand. But all of a sudden, at some point between 4.30 a.m. and 4.45 a.m., the water level in the canal dramatically dropped. This indicates the first of soon-to-be-many breaches in the industrial canal levee. Where exactly this breach happened isn't known. There were several breaches throughout the levee that could be the culprit, and honestly, it doesn't really matter. The levee was breached, and it was going to be breached again and again and again. One eyewitness near the west side of the industrial canal reported that water started to enter his home around 4.30 a.m., and by 5 a.m., the water was up to the ceiling. The catastrophic flooding had begun in the upper ninth ward. At this time, several members of the pump crew for pump station number 19 were at their stations working to keep floodwaters out. Station 19 was located on Florida Avenue right next to the industrial canal and would be one of the first places to see the floodwaters. And see them they did. They got hit from two different directions, one near their pumping station and another breach about a half mile south. Power dispatcher Gerald Elwood said that everything he'd seen in the canal, fish, all that kind of stuff, were now swimming inside of his building in the 15 feet of water in the very place that was supposed to be pumping the water back out. They had no way out. They were surrounded by 15 feet of water. They had to sit there and listen to the hurricane smash into their building for hours on end. But even once the storm left, they still didn't leave. For days and weeks, the crew members of Pump 19 stayed and worked. They did everything in their power to get the pumps up and running to get the water out of the area and back where it belonged. But it wasn't just the crew of Pump 19 there. On the other side of the industrial canal, a third breach had formed, which then crashed into housing Pump 5. Pump 5 was immediately flooded, and the pumps were flooded and unusable. So the crew of Pump 5 decided they couldn't do any good there when their pumps are underwater, and wanted to be useful elsewhere. One of the crew members happened to wish out loud that they thought they could find a boat, and then happened to look outside, and lo and behold, smashed into the railing outside was a fishing boat. They got on board and traveled across to Pump 19. 
There they stayed with the other crew, heroically doing everything they could to bump out the now standing water in New Orleans. The breach that impacted the Pump 5 station was at the intersection of Jordan Avenue and Johnson Street on the east side of the Industrial Canal. Now, if you remember back to the first episode of this series, I talked about the Jackson Barracks. The Jackson Barracks was in the Lower Ninth Ward, which has been described as frequently flood-prone, but in fact it wasn't. It was actually above sea level, so it didn't flood ever. Jackson Barracks was where the National Guard had set up their operations, and they didn't think they would have a problem. Again, Jackson Barracks had never flooded. So, if you remember back, the commander of the National Guard in Baton Rouge was on the phone with one of his guardsmen, and the guardsman was explaining that everything was going well, you know, besides there being a raging hurricane outside. And then all of a sudden he paused and said, I'll be right back. And when he came back, he said that there was a wall of water traveling down Claiborne Avenue. That wall of water was because of the breach in the Industrial Canal. At least 12 feet of water was headed right for them, and there would be more headed their way. There was no stopping it now. That was about 7.30 a.m. Hurricane Katrina had only just made landfall and begun to move away. This was shaping up to a, be a catastrophe in every sense of the word. When the breach occurred on the east side of the canal, it crashed through with extreme energy. It wiped houses off their foundation. It sent cars tumbling down the street, floating away like boats. Hundreds of residents would be immediately killed in the unsuspecting flood. The Lower Ninth Ward was one of the poorest areas of New Orleans, and frequently those who could not evacuate were the poorest members of the city because they couldn't afford to. The water in the Lower Ninth Ward rose so quickly that it's likely some people never had a chance to react. They were drowned almost immediately. Now, the primary mode of failure for these levee failures was that the levee was overtopped and it washed away the support on the outside of the floodfall. This decreased the support in the eye wall. That was, that's the seawall that's built up. Instead of building the levee up, they built the, the eye wall up. It was, a, it was a single beam running down. This allowed the uh, water to wash away the support in the dirt on the opposite side of the wall. So it's away from the water. Allowed that to wash it away, decreasing the support in the eye wall and then allowing the pressure of the water to push the wall over, collapse, and allow water to come out in a massive torrent. Moving on, our next breach was in the 17th Street Canal. The 17th Street Canal was the western moat canal to have levees fail in New Orleans. This was first observed by an individual in a nearby high-rise using a telescope. He was able to watch at 6.30 a.m. as the flood wall for the canal started to lean over and then about 9 a.m. completely breach. This allowed floodwaters to escape into the nearby neighborhoods, but this also caused another problem. This allowed the water that was supposed to be flowing into Lake Pontchartrain and out of the city from all the rain falling to begin to flow backwards into the city. The original breach in the wall was only about 30 feet wide, but the power of the water rushing through the now hole in the seawall quickly expanded it to a whopping 450 feet wide, completely inundating the Lakeview neighborhood of New Orleans. Just as in the Upper Ninth Ward and the Lower Ninth Ward, many people were killed almost instantly. The floodwaters in this area reached the roofs of homes in literal minutes. Anyone who couldn't get upstairs or on the roof quickly, the elderly, disabled, and those just not aware because it was early in the morning, would be drowned. Some people tried to get upstairs and had to escape to their attic to hide from the floodwaters. But unfortunately, this wasn't like a normal storm surge. The water wasn't going to stop until the level in the city was even with the level of Lake Pontchartrain. So when they escaped to the attic, some of them would be drowned in their attics before they could hack their way out. Some of these people would not be found for months. Some people were forced to watch as their older family members were drowned by floodwaters they could not outrun in their own homes. Then, they were forced to sit with the deceased bodies of friends and loved ones for days as they waited for rescue. The cause of the failure of the 17th Street Canal flood wall was nailed down early on. This wall actually failed before the wall had been overtopped. This is because, back in the 80s when the walls were installed, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers relied upon a study that was incorrect about the strength of the soil in the area and only put the eye walls in so deep. This means that when the water began to rise, the water pressure on the wall pushed the top of the wall out and allowed the bottom of the wall to kick in towards the water. 
when the water began to rise. It pushed it even further out and eventually collapsed the levee wall and allowed water to pour out, which then cascaded the failure even further as more and more water rushed out. The next failed canal was the London Avenue Canal. This canal actually breached in two locations at two different times. The first is the London Canal North Breach. No one was around to witness this catastrophic failure, but investigators were able to find numerous stopped clocks to indicate the failure happened around 7.30 a.m. When this breach happened, water levels were still four feet below the top of the flood wall, indicating it also failed in the same way as the 17th Street Canal flood wall, with the eye wall being pushed out and then totally collapsing. The same happened with the London Canal South Breach. There were witnesses for this one. Someone who lived right at the location of where the wall failed said that sometime between 7 and 8 a.m., the water came into their home incredibly fast. This one was also an eye wall failure and failed when the water level was still nearly four feet below the top of the flood wall. These two breaches flooded the Gentilly neighborhood of New Orleans with over 10 feet of water. This was some of the worst flooding in the entire city. But this failure also did something else. It combined with the floodwaters of the Industrial Canal West failure and continued to spread throughout a majority of the city. Now, the real reason that these canal breaches are so important is multifold. They had some of the worst flooding in the entirety of Katrina for one, but for two, the flooding wouldn't stop here once the storm left. This wasn't a storm surge situation. This was a, the water in Lake Pontchartrain is higher than the entire city, and without the flood walls in place, Lake Pontchartrain is essentially just emptying into New Orleans, at least until the water levels are even, or the pumps get back up and running. So until the canal breaches are patched, you have no possible way to stop the flooding from continuing to get worse until, again, Lake Pontchartrain and New Orleans are even. Trying to pump the water out is peeing into the wind. You're just going to have to all come back at you. It would take over 72 hours before Lake Pontchartrain and New Orleans were at an equal water level. That means there is continuous flooding for 72 straight hours. By noon on September 1st, the water had finally stopped emptying into New Orleans and everything was calm. Well, the water was calm at least. Everything else in the city was absolute hell. Many throughout the city were going to have to make in some incredibly tough choices. We're going to cover some of them here. Just know that all of the stuff we just talked about was before the storm even left. What we're about to talk about is all the stuff that happened after the storm went away. So what normally happens in a hurricane is the storm surge watches up on shore in a giant wave, wiping everything out as far as it pushes inland, then slowly recedes back into the ocean, because that is the way the ground slopes as you move in. The ground gets higher. Now there will be inevitably be some places where the water can't get back out, because the area is lower than the other places around it, and that causes problems, but generally those areas are few and far between. They are also not an entire city, but this time the issues were an entire city. Because as we talked about, New Orleans is largely now a city in a bowl. That's why we have all the pumps running throughout the city at all times. When it rains, the water has to get out or it will just stay there. Problem was, the entirety of the lake was now dumping into said bowl and said bowl was filling rapidly up. So we're going to cover a lot of stories all around the city because, well, all of the city is rapidly filling with water. The first place we need to talk about is the Superdome. The Superdome was an infamous event in Katrina. We briefly touched on it in the first episode, but I want to recover some of what we talked about and then move on beyond that. When we left the Superdome in the first episode, they had just managed to get the generator fueled up without opening the doors. If you remember, they had to refuel the generator because, well, they was about to run out of fuel, but they couldn't open it because the floodwaters were pushing against the door, and if they opened the doors, then the floodwaters would rush in and they would lose all power in the building whatsoever. They definitely didn't want to do that, so they cut a hole in the wall, ran the hose through the hole in the wall to the generator, and filled it up straight from the truck. They didn't know if it was going to work, but it managed to work, and they kept it running. But that didn't stop the floodwaters. The floodwaters were coming in under the doors that they had just backed up to, and were, again, threatening the generator. So they had to come up with a new plan. That plan was to walk carrying as many sandbags as they could through the Superdome and attempt to stop the floodwaters around the door. It took them hours, but they were eventually successful. But if you remember right, those generators were just running the lights, and occasionally a couple other important things, 
but basically just the lights. Inside the Superdome, after the power went out and the storm moved away, everything was deteriorating. They had no water pumps, and with no water pumps, that meant no toilets. That meant no sinks. That meant no running water whatsoever. The temperature in the building had begun to rise tremendously. This was South Louisiana, after all. Temperatures hit the 80s and continued to climb, and with all the water outside, so did the humidity. At this point on August 30th, which would be Tuesday, they were nearing 25,000 people in the Superdome, and it was growing by the minute. Rescue workers were plepping people trapped on their roofs and in the floodwaters and putting them in one of two shelters, the Superdome or the Convention Center. And just to briefly mention, the Convention Center wasn't doing too hot either. They had also been sent 20,000 refugees, and they were even less prepared than the Superdome. Neither place had enough food to take care of that many people for any amount of time, let alone what would be needed for this. They didn't have enough water, they didn't have enough clothes, they didn't have enough bedding. At least the Superdome had some of each of those things. It had been meant to be a shelter. The convention center had literally nothing. They hadn't planned for it to be a shelter. And I mean that literally. They had no food. People inside the convention center were looting a nearby ball to steal all of the food that they could just to live. There were reports of cops going into local stores and looting baby formula to bring it to kids in to mothers to feed their babies inside because they literally had nothing there. The other thing was, the Superdome had the National Guard. They were able to give out MREs, but only one a day, and only two bottles of water per day. The convention center didn't even have that. Inside the Superdome was described by multiple witnesses as absolute hell. People regularly broke into restaurants throughout the Superdome, smashed into vending machines, and found whatever food they could to eat whatever they could, all while stuck inside the baking sauna of the giant building. There were constant rumors of rapes and violence throughout the Superdome. Only one incident was ever reported, but the rumor of it was constant. And a group of survivors all report that on the second day, August 30th, a group of men attacked another man for assaulting a child. No one knows if that is true or not, and no one seems to remember exactly if a child was attacked. It was never reported, but it happened. The, at least the, the group attack happened. No one knows if he actually did it. But the threat of sexual assault was constant. It constantly hung over everyone. All of the women inside of the Superdome were terrified. And you can't blame them. In a situation like that, a single rumor can grow exponentially. The other threat there was the threat of physical violence. Now, there never was any confirmed reports of actual violence in the Superdome, but again... The threat is there. Rumors run wild, especially in situations like this when everyone's emotions are running at the absolute max. On day two, August 30th, the mayor of New Orleans informed those in charge of the Superdome that they couldn't get them out, but they could get them supplies. So, taking that, they sat down and made up a list of all the things they needed to help these people get through the next days of unknown. The Superdome would never receive those supplies, indicating just how bad the response was to this disaster. They would be forced to sit there in squalid conditions with no idea if supplies were coming, no idea when they were going to be evacuated, no idea if they were going to be evacuated. They had nothing. The toilets were overflowed completely. Like, compl you could not go in them anymore. People began to defecate in trash cans, sinks, behind walls, wherever they could find somewhere to go. Babies were forced to sit in soiled diapers as there weren't any available to change them. People slept on the floor in the most disgusting conditions imaginable. And then, the field started to flood. Luckily, the water would never get much higher than that, but things inside the building were desperate. Violence was happening. It wasn't super common, but it definitely happened. There were definitely fights over food, there were definitely people inside taking advantage of others in worse conditions. And people were actively dying, more from heat exhaustion and dehydration than murder, but a deep sense of dread and fear and panic hung over the inside of the Superdome. Meanwhile, over in the convention center, things were, they were, they were bad. They didn't have nearly the security the Superdome did. 
You see, before the storm hit and people got inside the Superdome, they were disarmed by a security checkpoint. You had to go through a security checkpoint to get to the Superdome before the storm, which meant that weapons inside this dome were minimal, if none at all. The convention center did not have that because it was not supposed to be a shelter. The National Guard that managed to get there was constantly responding to shots fired calls inside the building. One National Guard commander said they go inside following gunshots, see whoever firing at them from inside, chase them into the dark recesses of the convention center, because it was also out of power, before retreating outside because of the overwhelming smell. Whether or not these reports are accurate is up for debate. There was definitely some violence in the convention center, but much of it was likely overblown. But one thing that is certain is that numerous people that were in New Orleans, all over New Orleans, at night, all they would talk about was the number of gunshots. There were gunshots everywhere, over and over again, from different stories. It's gunshots, 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 in completely different areas of the city. It was all people who survived this situation could talk about, would always bring up the number of gunshots at night. So there was definitely some violence. It was likely not nearly as much as you would expect or has been reported, but there definitely was at least some. And like I said, the convention center had the same problem as the Superdome. The power was gone. That meant no water pressure. That meant the toilets backed up and were unusable, so people were leaving themselves in sinks and trash cans and wherever they could find some sense of privacy. Sometimes they didn't even need that. They also, as I said earlier, had essentially no food. They had no water, and it would take until Friday for the National Guard to be able to get any food to the convention center whatsoever. Rumors of violence ran wild in the convention center, even more so than the Superdome. There were rumors of children with their throats cut, women being yanked off the street, assaulted, then tossed back out again, gunfights between gangs, things insanely wild like that. But almost none of it appears to be true. People were just afraid, and one small incident then spiraled into massive rumors that were entirely unfounded. Early on, the Superdome's building manager's Doug Thornton's instinct was to evacuate. He wanted to get them out of the building, into fresh air in the parking garages. But the National Guard Lieutenant Colonel Doug Moten disagreed. If they took everyone out of the building, told them they were evacuating, and then they had to go back inside, it would be chaos. It would very likely descend into a riot. It was already precipitous as it was, and Thornton agreed. They would have to stay inside, which was likely not a very popular decision, but it was the one that had to be made. Finally, on Wednesday, FEMA sent word that they were sending buses to get everyone out of the Superdome and Convention Center, but it would be a while. They would need to hold on for just a bit longer. Thankfully, after a short delay, they were right. The FEMA buses arrived on Thursday and started to take everyone out of the Superdome and the convention center. The long nightmare was starting to end for those two places. In total, six people would die in the Superdome, four of natural causes, one overdose, and one man committed suicide when he announced he had nothing left to live for and leapt from an overhang inside the building. In the convention center, there were four deaths despite numerous rumors of hundreds of dead bodies, three from seemingly natural causes and one murder. Elsewhere in New Orleans, things were going bad on the Monday Katrina rolled through. Thousands of people were trapped in their home by floodwaters that weren't going anywhere. People were being forced to shoot through their roof with guns to get out. They were hacking through with axes. They were doing everything possible to bust through the roof to get out of the sweltering nightmare that was their attic. Because even on a good day, your attic is a terrible place to be. It's uncomfortable, it's usually full of gross insulation, and it's always hot somehow. Now imagine you're in your attic on a hot summer day, but there's 10 feet of water sitting below you full of who knows what at this point. It could be your stuff. It could be your neighbor's stuff. It could be literally your neighbor's dead body or your loved one's dead body, decaying in the disgusting, humid South Louisiana heat. And you are trapped in your attic, and you're still going to have to, you know, go to the bathroom, so you're going to have to go in a corner of the attic and pick one. That is hell. Dr. Juliet Saucy was the director of New Orleans EMS when Katrina came through. New Orleans EMS system was woefully outdated and way behind in maintenance, and there was no time to fix it. She'd literally only been hired eight months before Katrina. You can't update an entire fleet in eight months, so they made do with what they had. 
Eventually, things would get so bad that she, the director of EMS in a major U.S. city, was answering 911 calls as a dispatcher, telling people that they had no way to get them out and doing everything she could to help them over the phone, telling desperate mothers trapped in floodwaters to put their babies in shoeboxes and hope, telling a mother whose baby wasn't breathing that there was nothing she could do for her. Then, spending weeks upon weeks afterwards trying to track down those 911 calls that they couldn't get to, hoping to not find them dead, but unfortunately doing so frequently. Another story is a man by the name Andre. Andre lived in the Gentilly neighborhood of New Orleans. He had a baby son and a wife. They were doing alright. The water had never reached their house before, never even flooded. But then came Katrina and the London Canal breach. The water quickly came in their home and they rushed upstairs, but it kept rising and rising and rising. Eventually, Andre put his son, Andre Jr., and wife Alicia up on a higher portion of the room while he stood in the floodwaters. Eventually, it stopped rising, getting up to just past his waist level. There they stayed until the next morning when someone in a motorboat stopped by and picked him and his wife and son up. They carried him to the Broad Street overpass where they were put to wait. They had no food. They had no water. They had no shelter. They had literally nothing but the clothes on their backs. While they were there, more people began to show up, and some people on the overpass had started to take over, stealing food and money from those who were in a weaker condition who had something. The next morning, Andre said a young boy climbed up on the overpass ledge to look down. As soon as he did, he slipped and fell off, plummeting into the floodwaters 50 feet below. No one made a move to go down and rescue this boy. Everyone stayed and watched that boy likely die. And that's when Andre decided he needed to get his family out of there. So he took his wife and son down to the edge where he saw a man sleeping on an inflatable air mattress. He asked the man point blank if he could have it, saying he just had to get his family out of there. The man looked at him, looked at his wife, looked at his son, and handed it over without a word. So Andre put his wife and baby on the mattress and began to push them along. They were traveling along in the flood water when they felt the mattress bump into something that was fairly large floating in the water. Unbeknownst to them, that something was a dead man, bloated from flood water and floating face down. Andre yelled for Alicia to move it, and when she did so, he flipped over and it, she found out it was a dead man. She panicked and fell off into the water. Eventually, Andre got her calm back down and onto the mattress and was able to get them all to safety eventually being evacuated out of New Orleans. Debbie Esty was with her mother and teenage daughters in their home on Arch Street in the Gentilly neighborhood of New Orleans. She had decided not to evacuate for many of the reasons others hadn't. They'd never had a problem before. Nary a drop of water had ever threatened their home. On Monday morning, the water pouring in from the ruptured levee hit their house and quickly filled it to the top. They barely made it to the attic with their lives, with Debbie's daughter Tiffany nearly drowning in an attempt to save some pets. They were trapped in the attic. They had only managed to grab about a gallon of water to drink between the four of them and had no way to get through the roof. All they could do was yell and bang on the ceiling and hope. But it was not enough. About a day after entering the attic, Debbie's mother Melissa Harold began to fade. She said she was thirsty and wanted some water, but the little bit they could give her wasn't helping. Finally, by Tuesday, Melissa Harold had had enough. Her daughter Debbie and granddaughters Tiffany and Amanda told her they loved her. Melissa said she loved them back, and Debbie told her she was sorry they couldn't do more to help her. Melissa then closed her eyes and passed away. And that left Debbie with her daughters in a desperate spot. They had nowhere to go. They had no idea if anyone was coming for them or how long they would be there. They were literally sitting in their attic with the deceased mother and grandmother, just having to exist in that same spot, realizing that everything they loved was gone, their grandmother and mother that they loved had just died in front of them, and they were trapped in a sweltering hot attic that would have been well over 100 degrees in the middle of a flood, and they had no way to get out. They assumed they were going to die. Debbie admits that she broke down. She thought they were going to die and that the best way to do it was to make it less painful. She begged her daughters to take the pain meds she had with her and not sit in the suffering anymore. Her oldest daughter Tiffany told her no. They were going to be saved. Her daughter Amanda told her she wanted to live. She wanted a husband and kids and to go to school and live life. They were going to be left there to die 
They were going to survive, and they were going to thrive. And survive they did. On day three, Wednesday, Debbie's brother Aldo showed up in a boat. He hacked through their roof and pulled them out, saving all three of them. Gerald Martin, a 76-year-old native of New Orleans, had decided to stay after his family evacuated so he could attend church. On Monday, he took a nap during the storm, because this man is incredible, and woke up to find his house rapidly filling with water. Thinking quickly, he grabbed some water, some drinkable water, and headed to the attic to escape the rapidly rising floodwaters. And there he stayed. From August 29, 2005, until September 16th. No, that is not a joke. This 76-year-old man spent 18 days alone in his attic with only water in the New Orleans heat. The high temperature almost every day after Katrina came through was over 90 degrees. The temperature inside his attic would have been well over 100. And yet, there he was, sitting there, in just his underwear, waiting for someone to find him. His water ran out on the 15th of September. The entire time, he had no food. Eventually, two California-based FEMA workers, J.D. Madden and Eric Mihangos, had decided to search one more home after days of finding nothing but dead bodies. They were floating by on their boat, and they decided to briefly kill the motor and listen to see if they heard anything. And, all of a sudden, they heard a faint, Hey, over here! They immediately went up to the home, got a sledgehammer, and broke down the front door. There, in the kitchen, they found Gerald sitting in a chair amongst the ruined remains of his home. Incredibly, again, after 18 days alone in his attic with only water and for the last two days didn't have any of that, Gerald walked out of his home essentially under his own power. He was extraordinarily emaciated, but he walked out under his own power holding his own pants up. When they put him in the helicopter to evacuate him to a hospital to get some, you know, help, he asked the rescue workers if they could stop at a Taco Bell to get some food, because that man is an absolute badass. Next, we head to an under-talked-about portion of this story, the Orleans Parish Prison. When the storm first arrived in New Orleans and the levees started to break and fail, the floodwaters headed that direction. Instead of helping the inmates evacuate, many of the deputies for the jail deserted leaving prisoners locked in their cells without food, water, or any means of helping themselves. There are hundreds of inmate testimonials indicating that they were abused, abandoned, beaten, and threatened with death by guards. Some of them said that they were handcuffed in their prison cells with the doors locked as the guards quit en masse and evacuated themselves. Many of them witnessed other inmates floating dead in floodwaters on lower levels. Some were forced to stand for hours in water up to their chests. When they were finally evacuated out of the jail, they were brought to an overpass, where they were forced to sit in the sunlight without food or water for hours. If they moved, they were threatened with execution. No one knows exactly how many inmates died in the Orleans Parish Prison, but there are hundreds of inmates that are still listed as unaccounted for. This is just a few of the many, many stories throughout New Orleans that describe the absolute terribleness that happened throughout the entire city in the days after Hurricane Katrina arrived and the levees broke. There are thousands upon thousands of similar stories of survival, of death, of hope, of heartbreak all throughout New Orleans. But there is one more story that I want to share with you guys. It is going to be about the Memorial Hospital in Uptown New Orleans. Now, I want to warn you guys, this is going to get dark. Very, very dark. It is probably the quintessential story to understand the sheer desperation, disaster, and death inside of New Orleans in the days after Hurricane Katrina. It is very, very dark. It is very, very heavy. So if you need a break after all that's led up to this, it's a good time to do so before we get into this. Now, before I start, I want to shout out Sherry Fink, who is a reporter and former doctor, for her tireless research on this event. It is very possible without her, much of what I'm about to tell you would not be known publicly. So, without further ado, let's get going. On the morning of Hurricane Katrina's landfall, 
several thousand people were sheltering inside Memorial Hospital with about 600 patients and around 200 staff. There were about 2,000 people in total. The winds from the storm whipped against the hospital, shattering windows all up and down it. At around 5 a.m., the power in the building died. With that, so did a lot of the capabilities of what the hospital could do. The generators were there to power some of the life-saving equipment, the lights, and some other odds and ends. The air conditioning was not one of them. It was going to get hot. And that's a thing that needs to be stressed, is that New Orleans in August is exceedingly hot. It is humid. It is uncomfortably sticky. Because it is a city built in a swamp. And swamps are known to be, well, sticky and hot. So... The streets around Memorial Hospital had flooded briefly during the rain, but then managed to drain and stay free of water. They had some power from the generators, and everything seemed to be going alright going into the night after the storm moved through. They had made it through the storm, and they were going to be okay. Except, as we know, this was not the end of it. The flood walls had ruptured, and the next morning, Tuesday, August 30th, 2005, the staff at Memorial watched in shock as a wall of floodwaters advanced down the roads towards them. Now, this is as good a time as any to mention, much like the rest of New Orleans, Memorial Hospital sat below sea level, about three feet below sea level, and the emergency power for the entire building only sat a few feet above the ground at Memorial, which means that there would not be much water needed to reach the emergency power and kill all electricity for the entire hospital. That's not the lights and all, that is Everything, everything would be out. They were now in a race against time to get out patients before those who were on equipment they desperately needed to stay alive no longer had it. They had to get those patients evacuated immediately. Luckily, the Coast Guard had some helicopters available. The doctors just needed to make a triage decision and decide who needs to go first. They all met in a staff room and discussed it. The outcome of the discussion was neonatal ICU babies, Pregnant women and adult ICU patients would be the first to evacuate because they were likely not going to make it through the heat. But there was another discussion at this meeting, most notably, who would go last. It was brought up that those with DNR odors do not resuscitate, meaning that they did not want emergency life-saving procedures done in the event that their breathing or heartbeat stops, should go last. It was reasoned that because these people had DNRs, they had the least to lose. So... If they didn't make it out, they had less life to live than the people who would go in front of them. It was also argued that these people that had life-threatening and terminal conditions would not want resources that could save someone else being used on them. Everyone in the meeting agreed. That was in the early afternoon of August 30th. Helicopters soon began arriving on the top of the helipad on the nearby eight-story parking garage, and patients began to be carried down multiple flights of stairs, up a still-working elevator in the parking garage, through a hole in the wall, placed onto stretchers, and then carried in pickup truck beds to the waiting helicopters at the top of the parking structure. It was a long, arduous trip for both patients and the workers carrying them out. After all of those, after the first day of evacuation, there were about 130 patients left, including patients for a company called LifeCare. Life Care does everything in their power to help every patient in their care with the most up-to-date and cutting-edge medical technology. Many of their patients are in their care until they are stable and sent to a nursing home again or back home. Their patients were frequently on ventilators and other extremely intensive treatment regimens until they could get back to their nursing home or actual home again. This was not a hospice. This was not a place where people went to die. They were expecting to live and expecting to be receiving the very best care. When the hospital had the meeting of doctors in the fourth floor room, life care or their patients were not included in the discussion. The last bits of evacuations for that day happened after nightfall. The rest would have to wait until the next day. Now, that wasn't a decision by the Coast Guard. That was a decision by the people in charge at Memorial Hospital because the Coast Guard did offer to evacuate more patients overnight. But the Memorial Hospital command team declined, saying their workers needed rest for the next day. That same night, at about 2 a.m., the moment they had long feared since they saw the water headed down the street, arrived. The generators for Memorial Hospital sputtered, sputtered, and then died. What replaced 
was complete and utter silence. Then slowly at first, and then faster and faster, and a more cacophonous sound, machines began to beep. They switched to their backup batteries, and then those backup batteries slowly started to die. And so they needed to get the patients on ventilators out as soon as possible. So all of the life care patients and others in the hospital who needed ventilators were carried down seven flights of stairs and off to helicopters. Several did not survive the trip down. One story of a nurse bagging a life care patient for over an hour before another doctor said that there was no use and told her to stop. She was there as he died. During that, the hospital chaplain decided to turn the chapel into a makeshift morgue. That is where they put all the people who passed inside the hospital during these five days. On the morning of Wednesday, August 31st, Memorial doctors decided they needed to triage their remaining patients into different categories to help with the speed of evacuation. Now, for those that don't know, triage is used where there is minimal available resources to treat people, so mass casualty events and things like that. The usual triage, at least the one I was trained on, is black, red, yellow, and green. Black indicates obvious death. No pulse, dismemberment, things like that. If you're beheaded, you are dead, you get a black tag. Generally, you don't even tag death. You just move on. Red indicates some sort of major trauma, but still alive. These patients are often treated first because they're in the worst shape. They will not last long enough for you to wait to come back and bring them to whatever they need. They get taken on ambulances. They get primary care first. Next is yellow. These are the patients that have some trauma or issue but will still live if they wait slightly longer. These are things like compound fractures and things like that. Stuff that can wait a little bit longer as long as you stabilize them in the field and then they can move to a hospital where they will get better care. And then the last one is green. This is often called walking wounded. These are the patients who could get out under their own power. You know, broken arms, broken fingers, a concussion, things like that. Stuff that you can get up and walk and you can take care of yourself. You can travel yourself to the hospital or you can walk yourself to the ambulance who will then take you to the hospital. These are, the, these are usually taken care of last because they will survive and aren't going to be permanently disfigured from this. They will... They will get help when they need it, in the order they need it. This triage is not what Memorial decided to do. As they brought patients down, several doctors and nurses stood around writing 1, 2, and 3 on their charts and pinning the number to their chests. Patients labeled with a 1 were generally able to walk by themselves, were in good health, and would require minimal, if any, assistance from the hospital staff. They were sent to the emergency room ramp, to be evacuated first as boats arrived to take them out. Patients labeled with a 2 were generally sicker and would require more effort from the staff to care for and treat. They were to be evacuated second and were lined up in the corridor leading to the helicopter landing pad to wait for evacuation there. Patients labeled with a 3 were either the patients with DNRs or patients that had diseases or afflictions that the doctors deemed too ill to be properly moved and may not make the trip through the evacuation, or live on. These patients were moved to a far corner on the second floor, away from everyone else. But not all of the patients had made it down to the second floor to be triaged. Some of the life care patients, those deemed too risky to move, were still up on the seventh floor. Most of these patients either had DNRs, or were too ill or too heavy for the other doctors to want to move. One family member of a patient on that floor overheard some nurses talking about how they were not evacuating patients with DNRs yet. They were waiting until later, and they would be the last to go. That patient's family member tried desperately to get the DNR order rescinded for her mother, but there was told there were no doctors around to do it. Then, on the 8th floor ICU, there was one last patient, Jenny Burgess. Janie was in advanced stage cancer and had been treated with morphine to the point that she was unconscious. One of the doctors in Memorial decided there was no way they could get her downstairs considering the weight of the fluid from the disease probably made her over 350 pounds and it was eight flights of stairs. He also decided they needed those four nurses that were taking care of her elsewhere to help with other patients. So he ordered the nurses to give her extra morphine to help her pass on wrote pronounced dead at, followed by a blank, signed it, and then moved on. 
J.D. Burgess passed away a few hours later. The doctor who prescribed the medicine said he was doing so to get rid of her and get the nurses somewhere else. And I'm not joking. His exact words were, I was getting rid of her. There's no question I hastened her demise. So, uh, do with that what you will. Elsewhere in the hospital, doctors were beginning to discuss what should be done about the remaining sickest patients, and the thought of putting them out of their misery was brought up multiple times. Many doctors felt it was in their suffering or abandoned them. A group of doctors went to the second floor lobby where all the patients labeled three were being held and realized they couldn't do what they allegedly needed to do or wanted to do because they were, quote, too many witnesses. That is a direct quote. They did not give the patients the same as Janie Burgess because there were too many witnesses on the floor. So the patients that were labeled with a three stayed overnight once again. On the morning of Thursday, September 1st, 2005, more helicopters and boats arrived to evacuate patients, staff, and visitors from Memorial Hospital. But there was a problem. Those nine patients for life care on the seventh floor were still on the seventh floor. That morning, one of the life care workers walked through the seventh floor and noted they were all still alive. They'd all made it through the night. Several were even still conscious and alert and talking, asking when they would be evacuated. But soon after that, the nurse, Teresa Mendez, was pulled aside by a doctor from Memorial. Mendez claimed that doctor told her that the decision had been made to give the patients on the seventh floor lethal doses of morphine and other drugs to ease their suffering because they were all unresponsive. The doctor is informed that no, in fact, they were not all unresponsive. Several had asked that morning when they were getting out, including one patient named Emmett Everett who had fed himself and asked if they were ready to rock and roll and get him out of there. The doctor exclaimed and then moved on. A life care nurse was found in the hallway who was close to Everett. Everett was 380 pounds and paralyzed from the waist down, and memorial staff didn't think they could get him down the stairs and out. So they asked that nurse to explain to Everett the situation and to give him something that would make him more comfortable. Realizing what that meant, the nurse flat out refused. Eventually, they went into Everett's room and he was given a mix of drugs. He passed away not long after that. Room after room, the memorial doctor, Anna Pau, and two memorial nurses went in with vials of medicine, closed the door, then came back out, then to the next room, then to the next, then to the next, until they had visited all nine patients on the seventh floor. According to one nurse who was in the room, at least one patient was still conscious as the drugs were administered, Rose Savoy. She muttered, that burns, as the injection went in. And then she passed away not long after that. Nine times on the seventh floor they did this. Then, everyone alive left the seventh floor for good. None of the life care patients would make it down. Many rescue workers in the aftermath were interviewed and asked if they could have brought the other patients on the seventh floor down. And they all agreed that they would have been able to, but many of them had not been notified that literally anyone was still up there. They thought all of the patients had been brought down and were preparing to evacuate. Back on the second floor, there were still patients designated as level threes, about a dozen or so of them. Soon enough, all of these patients, with the assistance of some other nurses and a doctor, were all given doses of morphine to, quote, ease their suffering, and they too passed away. All except one. One patient, no matter how much morphine they gave him, seemed to refuse to pass. One nurse says that after he fought it so long, they realized it wasn't his time to go, they took him to the helipad, and he was evacuated. But that's not the story that everyone says. One doctor says that when this patient wouldn't go from the morphine, they placed a towel over his face and he was smothered to death. The doctors and nurses who participated in this covered the deceased patient with sheets and moved them discreetly to the chapel out of view of all the other evacuees so as not to panic them. Now, I don't want you all to think that everyone in the hospital supported this decision. Many of the nurses and doctors did not. They voiced their opinions that this was screwed up and went against their code of ethics, that if the patients had survived what they'd already been through, they could make it through an evacuation. Unfortunately, those voices were ignored. In total, 
45 patients died inside Memorial Hospital in the five days it took for everyone to be evacuated. It is estimated that about 24 of those people were purposely euthanized by doctors and nurses working for Memorial. In the end, Anna Poe was indicted for four of the deaths connected with Memorial. She would not be charged by a grand jury. There was a large groundswell throughout New Orleans saying that she was just doing what she had to do to help save lives. Now, my goal here is to not pass judgment as to what I think was right or wrong, but I'm going to ask you guys, do you think that she was justified in essentially ending these patients' lives who were suffering in a very terrible, squalid situation where there was no power, the heat was sweltering well over 100 degrees, and they had almost no chance of surviving, or... Do you think that because they had made it that far and all of them were still alive, they should have been given the chance to make it through the evacuation and that choice should not have been made for them? I'm not going to voice my opinion on it. Uh, it may have come through in the podcast. I don't know. But it is a very complicated situation. In the years since Katrina and the incident at Memorial Hospital, Poe has worked consistently and advocated for shielding doctors and other health workers from criminal and civil liability while working in disasters apart from intentional misconduct. And she has successfully had several bills passed in Louisiana shielding doctors from liability while working in disaster zones. For weeks after the storm left, rescuers would search homes to try and find people trapped, hopefully still alive. More often than not, they would find those who had called 911 during the storm for help dead in their homes. One of the things that came up regularly while looking at the aftermath of Katrina in New Orleans is the bodies. For days to weeks, bodies would regularly wash up in other places and be left in the street as EMS, fire, and police ran by trying to get to another crisis. Outside the Superdome, in the middle of an intersection, a family of three, mother, father, and child, were left in the sun for days until someone was finally able to collect them and give them a burial. One first responder talked of finding an elderly husband, dehydrated and near death, laying in bed next to his deceased wife, and refused to leave after having been there for two days. They had to pull him away to save him. The aftermath of Hurricane Katrina left many first responders with mental scars that would they would remember forever. It was absolutely brutal. Everywhere you looked in Katrina, in New Orleans, there was death and destruction and despair. It was truly a horrifying sight. The last of the water sitting in New Orleans was finally drained from the city by September 21st, 2005, with the last bits of water leaving the Gentilly neighborhood. Recovery from the disaster would take years. New Orleans was very nearly annihilated. The death estimate is about 1,800 people. We still do not have a firm number as many of the deceased were in a very advanced state of decay and could not be recognized when mortuary teams finally were able to get to them. In total, Hurricane Katrina caused $125 billion worth of damage, making it one of the most costly and most deadly disasters in American history. Many areas of New Orleans have never fully recovered, especially the Lower Ninth Ward, where much of the worst flooding took place and many of the homes were simply just washed away. Still to this day, many of the evacuees and refugees from Hurricane Katrina live in FEMA trailers brought in after the disaster. They, their homes were never rebuilt. In the aftermath, there were large scams of contractors that would come around, take money from people, and then just never return just take the money that they got and run. In the aftermath, many people that evacuated just never came back. But the spirit of New Orleans remained. Even after getting hit by Rita just a month later, New Orleans came roaring back. The Superdome, the place of absolute horror for many people in the city, was rebuilt in a year, and the Saints opened their season with a spectacular victory over their rival Falcons, and it seemed to breathe new life into the Grush City. The Big Easy was always going to come back. It was never going to be washed away. Because it takes a lot of water to wash away New Orleans. 
And with that, we have reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on social media. I'm not going to read through all of them. Uh, I appreciate you all so much for supporting this podcast through over the last two years and listening to it and just generally giving me positive comments and feedback. I appreciate you all so much. As always, stay safe and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.